This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box. If you love horror and sci-fi, the Nocturnal Readers Box is for you. Two novels every month delivered directly to your door, along with horror or sci-fi-themed bookmarks, art pieces, and more. Visit thenocturnalreadersbox.com. They've extended your opportunity for a few more days to grab the exclusive special edition of Salem's Lot by Stephen King. So rare, it's only available at thenocturnalreadersbox.com, a must-have for any Stephen King fan. That's thenocturnalreadersbox.com. Use the promo code WEIRD15 and get 15% off your first six-month subscription. That's thenocturnalreadersbox.com, promo code WEIRD15. One very persistent type of mysterious creature that seems to be present in a wide range of cultures and countries from all around the world is that of various flying beasts that roam about the skies above. Encompassing a variety of seemingly disparate phenomena, including flying humanoids, winged dinosaurs, and other airborne oddities, the one common theme to all of them is that they take to the skies to frighten tease the imagination and invite speculation. One place that certainly has its own stories of odd flying creatures of all sorts is the island nation of Japan, and in this episode we will look at some of their strangest. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help me spread the darkness worldwide. Leave a rating and review of the podcast in your podcast app. Share a link to this episode with your friends and family. And even more importantly, post it to social media. And a huge thank you in advance for even considering doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. A Native American hunting party tracks down a large, hair-covered creature and finds a giant mound with bodies of 19 human children. The children had not only been kidnapped, they had also been consumed by Sasquatch. Within the UFO files of the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations that are held at the National Archives, there is a USAF document which is dated July 23, 1952. That document describes a UFO crash in the woods of Maryland. Two Missouri teenagers and one teen's mother vanished without a trace after a high school graduation ceremony and have never been seen again. Henry Kendall was found in a graveyard with a bullet hole between his eyes. How he met his fate may be a mystery, but his reason for being in the graveyard was certain. He was there to snatch a body. Everything seems bigger when you're a child. 
and that includes shadow people. Glowing eyes, flapping wings, seven-foot wingspans. What are these strange, frightening flying creatures being reported in Japan? We begin there first. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. One fairly well-known account of what appears to be some sort of flying humanoid comes from one night in 1952, which started off just as any other for an Air Force Private Sinclair Taylor when he started his watch duty at Camp Okubo, which is near Kyoto, Japan. However, the evening took a turn for the decidedly strange when he heard an inexplicable flapping sound in the darkness beyond. Peering into the black night to ascertain where the unusual sound was coming from, Taylor alarmingly noticed what he at first suspected to be a very large bird flying towards him, framed against the moon and drawing ever nearer. As the creature inexorably drew closer, it soon became apparent that this was no bird at all. Instead, Taylor saw before him a large, man-like being, humanoid in form, that was estimated as being seven feet tall with a seven-foot wingspan which was flapping its expansive wings towards him. Whereas this bizarre apparition had been flapping its wings earlier, it then began to simply hover in the air near the startled soldier. Depending on the report you read, there is also sometimes mention of glowing eyes. However, it is difficult to say if this was in Taylor's original report or an embellishment added later. The panicked guard began firing his weapon towards it, but when he looked at the spot where the being had been hovering and where he had been shooting, it was gone. Whatever the bizarre creature was, it had vanished into the night as suddenly as it had appeared. There was no blood or any evidence that Taylor had hit it with any of the rounds he had fired, and he would say himself, when I looked to see if my bullets had found home, there was nothing there. Taylor was also not the only witness to whatever this thing was. When he reported it to his sergeant, it was revealed that another guard had seen what was apparently the same thing the year before. Although Taylor did not know of this other sighting and had no contact with the other eyewitness, the descriptions of the creature were remarkably similar. In addition to these sightings by personnel on the base, there were other strange happenings occasionally reported in the vicinity of the camp. Residents in the area had reported seeing what they believed to be giant birds, and there were sporadic reports of strange lights in the sky as well. The sightings all seemed to have appeared over just a couple of years, and seemed to stop as suddenly as they had started. In more recent times, there were more sightings, in 2011, in the days leading up to the deadly earthquake and massive tsunami in Fukushima, Japan, a witness named Marcus Pules claims to have made a sighting of what he describes as the Mothman in the area. Pules said that he'd been in Japan on business in February of 2011 and had decided to stay with a friend who had long lived in Japan teaching English in the rural town of Okuma in the Fukushima region. 
One day, the two friends went out to look around the town, and in the evening they went to the seaside, walking along a trail that meandered near the Daiichi Fukushima nuclear power plant. At this point still in normal working condition, with no hint as to the major disaster and specter of doom it was to become. As they walked along, Pules claimed that he heard a sudden whoosh, which he at first took to be the sounds of the nearby ocean waves crashing against rocks, but his mind was changed when the sound repeated and was then followed by an ear-piercing shriek the likes of which he had never heard before. His friend heard it as well, as did a couple who had been on the same path out for a romantic evening stroll. Pules would say, we heard it again, the whooshing noise, followed by an ear-pitching screech that shook me down to the bone and made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. We looked around for the cause of the noise. When we heard the sound again, the best way I can describe it is a city bus's brakes when they are in need of service, loud and ear-splitting. We both continued to look around when my friend's attention was drawn toward the plant by another nearby couple. A younger couple out for a walk were staring toward the plant, arms outstretched and the obvious fear in their voices showing itself. Pules then looked out towards the power plant looming in the distance and thought he could make out a large shadowy figure silhouetted by the plant's lights and the moonlight, which appeared to be sitting perched atop one of the buildings. As he stared at it, trying to figure out who or what it could be, the figure suddenly unfurled what looked like a massive set of black wings and took to the sky, where it circled the plant several times. Pules described the frightening events that followed thus. The creature then took flight and circled the plant at least four or five times. Some circles he took at a fast pace, some he seemed to slow down, all the while he kept his attention on the row of square-shaped buildings that I later found out housed the reactors. The creature then came toward us, flying at least 25 to 30 feet off the ground. The younger couple, who had noticed the creature first, were now screaming and cowering, the man shielding the woman while shielding his head with a jacket. My friend and I looked in awe as this creature flew over us. That's when I noticed the two large red eyes. They seemed to glow from within and with a blood-red hue. They were unblinking in the three or four seconds we saw them. We knew they were looking straight at us. We knew this creature knew we could see it, and it made no attempt to disguise itself. This sick, intense, and overwhelming feeling of dread came over us. A feeling that we shouldn't be there was, to say the least, overwhelming. Then the bizarre flying humanoid creature suddenly flew off towards town as the friend fumbled with his cell phone trying to take pictures of it, until it eventually faded away into the distance to leave the witnesses in a state of terrified confusion. Pules and his friend quickly vacated the area, and as soon as they got home, the two panicked men talked about what they had seen, trying to come to grips with what it had been and settling on the explanation that it must have been a large bird or optical illusion caused by the lights of the plant although they both knew deep down that this was not the case. Because of the dark conditions at the time, none of the pictures the friend had tried to take turned out well. In the following days, they tried not to bring it up, and Pules would try to put the strange encounter out of his mind. It was not until after he had returned to the States 
that he would be reminded of the creature once again. When the same friend woke him in the middle of the night in March, frantically talking about the huge earthquake that had just struck the area where he lived, practically leveling the town he was in. Pules turned on the TV and over the next few days was bombarded with images of the devastation that the earthquake and resultant tsunami had dealt out, including the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, which happened to be the very same plant where they had seen the frightening winged humanoid. Pules would muse on the relationship between the disaster and what he had seen, saying, the Fukushima Daiichi was the exact same plant we had seen the strange bird-like creature circling. Was it pure coincidence or was it the mythical Mothman doing his strange work of predicting disasters? I may never know, and I may go to the grave wondering that, but one thing is certain for sure, I don't think that neither of us is going to forget this event no matter how long we live. A similar bizarre report was posted on the Phantoms and Monsters website in 2016 and describes a report from an Australian man who had visited a friend in Japan in 2015. While he was there, his friend told him of a bizarre encounter he had on the slopes of Japan's majestic Mount Fuji at the Kamataki Shrine. He would relate his friend's strange experience thus. They had been at the shrine and other local sites throughout the day. While they were leaving the parking lot, they both noticed a strange-looking man crouched down by a tree near the edge of the forest. My friend slowed down his car as they continued to watch this man. The forest was dark, but they could see a halo of red light over his head. About that time, he turned and stood up. Instantly, a pair of huge, dark, butterfly-like wings sprung open from his back and he shot up into the canopy. As it ascended, they noticed the wings reflected light. They then noticed that two older women had been watching this man as well, who screamed and ran away towards a nearby building. Other people then reacted to the screams and were looking towards the forest. My friend did not stay and drove off. They were both frightened and his fiancée cried most of the way home. Other winged monsters said to lurk in Japan go way back into history and folklore, such as the bird-like humanoids called the Tengu. These Tengu were often seen as mountain gods, but there are many traditions for what they are. They are variously described as being cursed humans, demigods, demons, spirits, or a separate race of living beings altogether. Tengu were said to be hatched from eggs like birds, and stories abound of travelers coming across Tengu nests filled with their giant eggs high in the remote mountains. One egg was said to be enough to feed an entire family, but few would dare to disturb them for fear of the Tengu's bloody wrath. They were often said to favor cryptomeria trees for their nests, which are known for their aromatic wood, so people were especially weary of Tengu when near these particular trees. Tengu have been known to possess a wide array of supernatural powers, including teleportation, telepathy, premonition, thought projection they were thought to be able to invade a person's mind and drive them insane, and shape-shifting. Tengu were said to be able to take the form of a man, woman, or child, but were most fond of taking the shape of a monk or elderly mountain hermit. In some areas, Tengu were thought to be able to take the forms of tanuki or raccoon dogs 
and kitsune, or foxes, which were also known as shapeshifters. It's even suggested in some traditions that foxes and raccoon dogs were not in fact shapeshifters themselves, but rather merely alternate forms taken by Tengu. Tengu translates to heaven dog, but this name is misleading as they look nothing like dogs. It is thought that the name heaven dog was derived from a somewhat similar creature in China that was known as the Tiangu, or celestial hound. It's not known for sure why these strange Chinese creatures were called this, but one hypothesis holds that they were named after a devastating meteor that hit China somewhere around the 6th century BC. Accounts describe the tail of this falling meteor as looking like the tail of a dog, hence the name Celestial Hound, and the powers of destruction that were associated with these creatures. There are various hypotheses proposed for why these Chinese Tiangu became the Tengu of Japan, but it seems that at least the name has its origins there. The most common modern image of Japanese Tengu is not of a dog at all, but rather that of a humanoid bird-like creature with a very long nose, a human's body, arms and legs, yet possessing wings and feathers. The contemporary Tengu is often depicted as looking more or less like a human warrior monk with wings and an abnormally long nose, a somewhat angry-looking face, and frequently with deep red-colored skin. However, in the long history of the Tengu, they have undergone somewhat of an evolution in both form and purpose. The original incarnation of the Tengu was animalistic, more avian than human, and was typically portrayed as looking variously like anything from simply a giant bird of prey to a vaguely humanoid form covered in feathers, wings, piercing eyes, a compact head with a prominently beaked face, and heavy, vicious-looking talons. They are depicted both with clothing and without. These animal-like beings were known as the Karasu Tengu, or literally, Crow Tengu, although they could just as often look like eagles or other birds. The Karasu Tengu were known as evil creatures, prone to abducting children, starting fires, and savagely killing anyone foolish enough to do damage to their forest lair. They were even known to slaughter people for no discernible reason at all. These were violent and malicious creatures, said to enjoy ripping travelers limb from limb, and they were thought to be heralds of disaster, war, misfortune, and doom wherever they went. In later times, the Tengu underwent a gradual transformation, becoming increasingly more anthropomorphized over time. The beaks became humanized into long, sometimes hooked noses, and the bodies became more clearly humanoid in form. These more human-like Tengu were often depicted holding feathers in their hand and wearing a monk's garb. These later versions became known as the Konoha Tengu or Yamabushi Tengu, which means Mountain Monk Tengu. The Tengu became increasingly known as great warriors skilled martial artists, and expert weaponsmiths. In fact, they were often given the reputation of being the best martial arts instructors. In addition, they were gradually seen as more benign creatures, even helping or protecting humans, whereas the more ancient forms of malicious Tengu 
were said to abduct children or attack travelers. The later, more benevolent Yambushi Tengu were often enlisted to help find missing children. The Tengu still maintained their love of war and fighting, but their overall evil and sinister reputation was softened somewhat. In some cases, these more intelligent, more civilized Yambushi Tengu were seen as coexisting with the earlier Karasu Tengu as their leaders. Regardless of how benevolent they were seen to be, all forms of Tengu were known to have a mischievous streak to some extent. They were known for deceiving and playing tricks or pranks on humans, or sometimes kidnapping people only to disorient them and set them loose just to see what would happen. It was said that shoguns would sometimes go so far as to formally request that any Tengu leave the area in advance of important visits in order to reduce the chance of embarrassing incidents and tomfoolery. There was even a scroll at a temple in Shizuoka Prefecture which allegedly contains a written apology penned by a Tengu. It is told that the creature was captured in the 17th century by the high priest of the temple and forced to write the apology after relentlessly harassing travelers in the area. Other such relics related to Tengu can supposedly be found in temples around Japan. For instance, the Hachinoe Museum in Aomori Prefecture houses the alleged mummified remains of a Tengu. The skull of these remains is humanoid, while the body is covered with feathers and the feet are like that of a bird. Another temple in Sayatama Prefecture keeps what is said to be the talon of a Tengu, while still another supposedly has the beaked skull of one. Is there any grain of truth at all behind any of these stories? Does the Tengu have any cryptozoological significance? Of course, the sword-wielding, magic-using, telepathic winged humanoids do seem far-fetched, but what of the earlier versions of the Tengu? It seems at least worth considering the cryptozoological possibilities behind this creature's origins. Another type of winged beast that is said to prowl the skies of Japan is less humanoid in nature but just about as strange and are described as monstrous crows, a sight that is familiar to anyone who has been to Japan for any length of time is the large populations of crows. They are everywhere, and in recent years their population has exploded. Although they have a powerful place in Japanese folklore and myth, these ubiquitous birds are clever, bold, and even aggressive to the point that they have become a real nuisance in many areas. Although Japanese crows tend to be quite large to begin with, in some countryside areas there have been reports of crows far larger than the normal carrion crow or jungle crow that are found in Japan. Some remote rural farmers have described being alarmed by crows at least twice as large as usual and with wingspans estimated at six feet or more. One sighting from the 1980s was made by a group of kindergarten school children walking home from school in a rural village. The children were startled when a huge crow landed on the road in front of them. A teacher with the children also saw the crow and described the bird as being almost as tall as the children, which would make it an enormous bird indeed. The giant bird appraised the group briefly before flying off into the trees. 
Another sighting was made in the late 1990s by a farmer and his wife in Shizukua Prefecture. The man claimed that they had been out in the field one day watching their dog run about when a massive black shape dashed down from the sky to land on the ground near the dog, startling it in the process. The witness claimed that the bird was an enormous crow that was bigger than their dog and with an estimated 8-foot wingspan. The gigantic bird hopped about for a bit and then flapped its vast wings to take off into the sky once more. These supersized crows are said to be most active at dusk and are generally reported as being shyer and less bold than usual crows. When they sense a human nearby, they are known to retreat quickly. They also do not seem to be as vocal as more normal-sized crows. It seems most likely that perhaps larger individuals of regular Japanese crows are being misidentified as something bigger, or perhaps some larger out-of-place bird or escaped exotic animal is behind the reports. The Stellar's sea eagle is found in Japan and is one of the world's largest birds, with wingspans up to 8 feet. In Japan, the sea eagle is typically found in the northernmost island of Hokkaido. However, vagrant sea eagles have been known to venture all the way down to the east coast of Japan. The sea eagle is typically dark brown to black all over the body except for some white markings. With its typically dark coloration, could a sea eagle be misidentified by someone not acquainted with them as a very large crow in the dusk hours these giant crows are seen? It would certainly explain the large sizes reported, as well as the behavior that diverges from typical crows, such as shyness and lack of vocalizations. Whatever they are, the giant crows of Japan remain a perplexing avian mystery. Winged monsters seem to be a permanent feature upon the landscape of the weird. Whether they take the form of giant flying creatures or winged humanoids, they remain mysterious enigmas that pervade regions around the world. What lies at the heart of such accounts? Are these biological entities or something altogether different? It appears that it depends on the particular case involved. But until we have answers either way, the phenomenon of winged cryptids will continue to stoke our imaginations. Keep listening, there's a lot more weird darkness to come. You know, I am an extremely busy guy, you already know that, but one thing that helps me get through the day and all these recordings, and the energy I need, the focus I need, it comes from dawn to dusk. I used to crash every afternoon, even if I was drinking coffee all day. But then I began taking two dawn to dusk capsules each morning around 8 a.m. and boom, suddenly I had energy and focus the rest of the day. I didn't have to resort to any high-calorie energy drinks either, and I didn't get that jittery feeling that a caffeine pill or some energy drinks used to give me. There's no sugars, no salt, no preservatives, no artificial stuff. It's just the perfect blend of ingredients to give you a lift physically and mentally without crashing or giving you that jet lag feeling. You could try it for yourself at BrickHouseWeird.com. That's a special page they created just for you, my weirdo family. That's BrickHouseWeird.com. In fact, you can save 10% off of Dawn to Dusk if you use the promo code WEIRD at checkout. 
That's BrickHouseWeird.com and then use the promo code WEIRD to save 10% off your bottle of Dawn to Dusk. The year was 1855 in the region of the present U.S. states of Oklahoma and Arkansas, where the once mighty Choctaw Nation of Native Americans once ruled over all they saw. In this year, there was an apparent scourge of unseen bandits venturing forth from the wilderness to steal vegetables and even livestock. This might have been the end of it if it were not for the claim that the trespassers are said to have soon graduated to kidnapping people mostly children, which provoked a fierce reaction in the tribe. A search party was allegedly formed, composed of a group of uncommonly large cavalry warriors called the Light Horsemen, the largest of whom was the towering Hamas Tubby and his six sons, who were widely reported as standing at around seven feet or more in height. These real giants, along with a contingent of 30 other very large and fierce horseback-riding warriors, headed out led by a part French, part Choctaw general by the name of Joshua Lafleur, and their mission was to find the culprits and put an end to their reign. As they headed out into the wilderness in the early morning hours from the tribal capital of Tuscaloma, fully armed with high-powered rifles and pistols and thirsty for vengeance, these menacing, proud warriors no doubt thought that this would be a simple matter of routing some ragtag group of bandits, yet they were in for quite a bizarre surprise, to say the least. The group of warriors penetrated deep into the region, which is now known as the McCurtain County Wilderness Area of present-day Oklahoma, and after eight hours of riding non-stop through the blazing June sun, they stopped at a spot near the Clover River to rest and eat, before remounting and continuing on the last leg of their tiring journey. It was after nearly 14 hours of almost non-stop riding that the men reached the area where the bandits were said to be the most active, and it was here that Lafleur suddenly gave the order to halt, as if he had seen something that had caught his attention. Using a crude telescope, Lafleur peered off into the distance as the men rumbled amongst themselves and the horses huffed and chuffed. The general claimed that he could see something moving about ahead and voiced his confidence that it was the enemy before putting the telescope aside and giving the warriors the order to charge. The massive, bloodthirsty warriors must have been quite a sight as they howled and rushed their horses through the trees in a mad dash into battle, weapons drawn and ready to fight. Yet their powerful drive forward was soon brought to a halt when the unbearable stench of decay hit them like a wall and their steeds began to inexplicably buck and rear in an abrupt, profound panic, knocking several of them to the mossy ground to writhe around hacking and coughing. Such was the intensity of the supposed olfactory assault. Some of the warriors, including the Tubbies and Lafleur himself, were allegedly able to control their animals and advance past this nauseating wave of rotting stink to rush towards the bandits, and as they exploded out into a forest clearing, the source of the stench was clear. There, in the center of the clearing, they found what was described as some sort of earthen mound that had embedded within it and strewn about it 
numerous corpses in varying levels of decomposition, drawing a fog of flies that droned all about the startled warriors. Of human bandits, there was no sign, but looming nearby were three enormous ape-like creatures covered with hair, so tall as to dwarf even the most statuesque of the tubbies themselves. These beast men purportedly stood there glaring in their direction, completely unafraid of the tribal warriors. What purportedly followed next is just as dramatic and over-the-top as any action movie. Lafleur is said to have charged the strange beasts without hesitation, pistol and saber in hand, and howling the whole time. One of the creatures stepped forward and lashed out with a massive hand to swat the general's horse to the side of its head with a thunderous blow that sent it sprawling to the ground, dead. Lafleur was ejected to the ground but was soon on his feet with pistol blazing, managing to hit the wild man several times but barely slowing it down at all. Even after sustaining several gunshot wounds, it barely bled at all, seemed to have not even felt it, and lunged forward to grab the man by the head and rip it clean off. All of this had happened before the others had even had any time to react, nor indeed even process the situation at all, and they had witnessed it in a wide-eyed stupor. Upon seeing their general slump to the ground without a head as this vicious ape creature loomed over his carcass, they produced their rifles and launched a withering volley of bullets at the monsters, which managed to drop all but one of them. The grievously injured creature purportedly limped off in a bid to escape, but was set upon by one of the Tubby brothers, who pounced and apparently cut its head off with his hunting knife. In the aftermath, it was just a few scattered native warriors, poised and ready for the next attack that would never come. The smell of gun smoke and that fetid stench of dead bodies, feces and urine lingering all around them. In the background, that tubby brother crouched over the hulking beast with blood on its knife and hands. The natives then went about the grim work of burying the dead, finding the bodies of at least 19 children among them, and the bodies of the hulking beasts were burned on a bonfire. It is without a doubt a harrowing, terrifying tale filled with mysteries, monsters, and sheer otherworldly bizarreness. The tale has been passed around the internet quite a lot, it seems, and if it seems too good to be true, then it may be because it perhaps is. The tale does indeed incorporate various historical facts, as Lafour seems to have indeed been a real person who did die in 1855, and the Tubbies are apparently real as well. But this means little in the larger picture, as any historical figure can be inserted into any wild story you like, sort of like a fan fiction. Not helping matters is that while the story has made the rounds on the internet, the best source I can truly link it back to is a book with the rather unwieldy title of True Bigfoot Horror, The Apex Predator, Monster in the Woods, Cryptozoology, Terrifying, Violent, and True Encounters of Sasquatch Hunting People Cryptozoology Sasquatch Paranormal Volume 1 by Jeremy Kelly, which seems to have just a collection of unconfirmed Bigfoot anecdotes, as well as reviews that are, well, shall we say, not kind. This is not to say it is all bunk, but there is also very little in the way of actual verification or corroboration of this amazing tale, and for all intents and purposes, it may as well have come from the depths of the imagination. 
Nevertheless, from this source has sprung a persistent Bigfoot legend, all without any way to know just how believable it is, further cementing its power in the world of the weird. Is this a case of an urban legend in the making and a twisting of history, or is there something more to it? Whatever the case may be, it is a strange account. Dr. Henry W. Kendall was found in the graveyard of the Onondaga County Poorhouse with a bullet hole between his eyes the morning of May 19, 1882. He was alive but unconscious when found and died in the hospital later that day. Exactly how Dr. Kendall met his fate was a mystery, but his reason for being in the graveyard was certain. He was there to snatch a body. He was found surrounded by tools of the grave robber's trade, two shovels, a piece of old carpet, and a satchel containing a cant hook, a length of rope, a dark lantern, and a bottle of whiskey. He was also found with a dirk and two revolvers. In his pocket was a card which read, Be Sure 8 O'Clock. Dr. Kendall made no secret of being a resurrectionist and bragged that he had stolen bodies from cemeteries in Manolis, Cicero, Casanova, and Syracuse and sold them to medical schools for dissection. It was not clear why he did it, since he was a promising young doctor with a thriving medical practice in Syracuse. Dr. Toteman, who had performed the post-mortem on Dr. Kendall and had known Kendall in life, described him as a monomaniac on the subject of grave robbing and said, I've known him to rob a grave where there was no necessity for it and no demand for the body. He seemed to think there was something brave and daring in it. Kendall was known to use morphine. Some believed that under its influence he became frightened and accidentally or intentionally shot himself. But the shot could not have been accidental. The angle of the wound indicated that the gun had been level with his forehead. The lack of powder burns near the wound ruled out suicide. Perhaps Kendall had gone to the graveyard with an assistant and the two had quarreled. Kendall was described as fearfully reckless with a violent temper and he was always armed with a revolver. He may have drawn his pistol on the assistant, who fired back in self-defense. But if Kendall had an assistant, no one could say who it was. An organization called the Grave Protectors had recently been formed to combat the rash of grave robbing around Syracuse. Kendall might have lost a gunfight with one of its members. He boasted that he would shoot any person who had the temerity to disrupt his right to steal a corpse. Even if Kendall had been caught in the act of robbing a grave, his shooter would face murder charges, and no one came forward. None of these theories could be proved. With the lack of any suspects, the coroner's jury found that Dr. Henry Kendall came to his death from the effects of injuries received from a pistol shot in the hands of some person unknown. Within the UFO files of the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations that are held at the National Archives, there is a USAF document which is dated July 23, 1952. 
It briefly describes an event that occurred in Maryland only 24 hours earlier. The document reads like this. On 22 July 1952, Colonel Smith, Executive Officer, Directorate of Intelligence, USAF, advised that his office had just received a call from the above-captioned individual and that he was concerned over some object that had apparently fallen in a wooded area behind his home. According to Colonel Smith, Mr. Deleted resides on Lay Hill Road, Silver Springs, Maryland, and is employed by some Buick company in the Silver Springs area. Colonel Smith further stated that Mr. Deleted reported his incident to the local police on 19 July 1952, the date the incident occurred, but having received no satisfaction, decided to call the Air Force on 22 July 1952. I telephonically communicated the above information to Colonel White, District Commander, DO No. 4. While the matter was not resolved, there is one issue that's worth noting when it comes to this particular account. That issue is the time frame. July 1952 was also when a UFO invasion occurred in Washington, D.C. It was an affair that disturbed elements of the military and caught the deep attention of the CIA. UFOs were not just seen, they were also tracked on radar. It was a major development in the UFO phenomenon. Keeping in mind the DC wave of July 1952 and the object that had apparently fallen in a wooded area in Maryland in the same time frame, it's worth noting the words of a Canadian engineer named Wilbert Smith. According to Smith, who shared the story with U.S. Navy Rear Admiral H.B. Knowles, he knew of the recovery of a piece of a flying saucer that had, quote, been shot from a small flying saucer near Washington in July 1952, unquote. Not only that, Smith claimed possession of that same piece. Smith said in an interview with UFO researcher C.W. Fitch in November 1961, I showed it to the Admiral. It was a piece of metal about twice the size of your thumb which had been loaned to me for a very short time by the United States Air Force. As a general thing, they differ only in that they are much harder than our materials. In reality, a matrix of magnesium orthosilicate. The matrix had great numbers, thousands of 15-micron spheres scattered through it. According to Smith, he handed the material over to an agency that he would only describe as being much higher than the Air Force. When asked if the agency might have been the CIA, Smith refused to say anything more, except that the debris was in, quote, the hands of a highly classified group, unquote. It's important to note that much of what has been said about Smith has been distorted, and particularly so certain issues relative to controversial tales of dead aliens and crashed UFOs. Kimball suggests that what Smith learned about crashed UFOs may actually have been disinformation, aimed at the Soviets, and possibly designed to convince Stalin that the United States had access to advanced alien technology. Whatever the truth, it might be worth someone's time to look further into the matter of the incident at Silver Springs, Maryland in July 1952, the UFO wave of the summer of 1952 in D.C., and the words of Smith. Maybe, somewhere, there's a connection. Maybe.
This happened when I was about six or seven years old, about 40 years ago. But I still remember this vividly. I was in the tub, which was my daily ritual before getting to bed. It was around 7 or 8 p.m. I was in bed by 9 or 9.30 at the latest. The bathroom door was open, so in case I fell or something was wrong, my parents would hear. The bathroom was literally beside my bedroom. I was almost done, and there it was. This very tall man. By tall, I mean tall. The ceilings in my parents' house are 10 feet. I saw a man in dark pants and plaid long-sleeve button-up shirt walk by the bathroom right into my room. His head would have been in the attic. All I saw walk by was literally from the shoulders down. He made no noise, just simply walked by, and that was it. Never saw it or him again. Of course, the shadows of people or something that go by the windows at my parents and by the windows of my own house, which is behind theirs, they don't do anything. No noise, no nothing, but simply put, you glance a shadow at the window, walking towards the door and that's it. Gone. Sometimes they weird me out, sometimes they don't. The very tall man, yeah, he weirded me out. I started taking showers due to his appearance, and I have ever since. On June 6, 1992, two Missouri teenagers and one teen's mother vanished without a trace after a graduation ceremony and have never been seen again. It was a shocking and tragic end to what should have been the event of a lifetime, and it remains a haunting, unsolved mystery to this day. Best friends Suzanne Susie Streeter, 19, and Stacy McCall, 18, had just graduated from Kickapoo High School, and they spent the evening celebrating with friends. They visited several different graduation parties and then decided to go to Susie's house, which she shared with her mother, Cheryl Levitt, a 47-year-old cosmetologist, for the rest of the night. Cheryl was probably happy to see them. Her night had been quiet. She'd been on the phone with a friend talking about painting furniture until about 11.15. What happened after that remains a chilling puzzle. Since all of Susie and Stacy's belongings were later found at Cheryl's house, purses, clothes, makeup, etc., it was assumed that they did make it there. Their cars were also in the driveway. But when friends arrived at the Levitt house the next morning, Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl were all missing. A group of graduating friends all planned to go to the Whitewater Water Park the next day, so friends, Janelle and Kirby, came to the Levitt house at 8 a.m. on June 7th. They knocked, but there was no answer. They went home and then returned at noon, thinking that perhaps the two girls had left for the water park without them. As they approached the house, they saw that the porch light was broken. They swept up the glass, trying to be helpful but unknowingly contaminating a crime scene. Janelle and Kirby checked the door. It was unlocked. That was their first inkling that something might be wrong. When they entered the house, though, everything seemed intact. There were no signs of a struggle. The house was just empty, as if they had simply walked away. But to where? The cars were all parking in the driveway. 
but Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl were nowhere to be found. Just before the two teenagers left, the telephone rang. Janelle answered. The caller didn't identify himself but began making lewd comments, so Janelle hung up, assuming it was a prank call. She and Kirby left the house. A little while later, Stacy's mother, Janice McCall, arrived at the house. She had tried to call but there was no answer so she had driven over. She hadn't heard from her daughter since early the previous evening. There was no answer when she knocked so she went inside. She looked around and found Stacy's belongings. Her daughter's underwear and t-shirt were missing, but the rest of her clothes were neatly folded on a chair. It looked like both girls had removed their makeup in the bathroom the night before. Janice also found all three of the missing women's purses lined up on the floor outside Susie's room, which seemed odd. The television was on, and Janice saw there was a message flashing on the answering machine. When she tried to listen to it, she accidentally deleted it. She was convinced that something was wrong. It had been 16 hours since the three women had been seen. Janice and her husband decided to contact the police. When the authorities arrived, they tried to nail down just how many people had been inside the house, possibly contaminating the crime scene, and tried to figure out what had happened. It was a baffling situation, but suspects soon emerged. The first suspect was Cheryl's son, Bart Streeter, who had recently argued with his mother and sister about his drinking problem. But Bart had a solid alibi and was soon ruled out. Authorities also questioned Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Regla. He had been in trouble before. A short time back, he and a friend were arrested for vandalizing cemeteries. Susie had given a statement to the police that stated that the boys had been digging up graves and stealing gold teeth from the corpses. Threats had been made against Susie and her mother. When questioned, though, the boys were cooperative and also ruled out as suspects. The investigation then focused on Robert Craig Cox, an Army veteran who had been arrested and convicted of a woman's murder in Florida. The case was overturned due to a lack of evidence. In 1985, Cox was convicted of two different abduction attempts and sentenced to nine years in prison. His case was appealed and overturned in 1992 when a judge ruled that the evidence only gave the suspicion of guilt rather than proof of it. He was released in 1992 and sent to live with his parents in Springfield, Missouri, which put him in the right place at the right time to have been potentially involved in the disappearance of the three women. Cox worked as an electrician, which the police speculated could have given him an excuse to enter the home. They also found that Cox had previously worked with Stacy's father at his car lot. Cox's girlfriend gave him an alibi at the time, but years later, she admitted that she lied. Cox had convinced her to make up the story if the police asked where he was during that weekend in June. Her story seemed solid, so the police had no choice but to let him go but Cox found it impossible to stay out of trouble. A short time later, he was arrested again for an unrelated crime. Detectives still believed that he had something to do with the missing women and took the opportunity to question him again. Cox laughed at them. He said that he knew the women were dead and he claimed he knew where their bodies were buried. Was he telling the truth? The police didn't know. 
Cox loved attention, and this was the perfect way to get it. He was their most promising suspect, but he wouldn't talk, and they had no hard evidence against him. Eventually, the case went cold. The case of the Springfield Three officially remains open. Tips and stories have led to nothing but dead ends over the years. Theories abound. Some say they were victims of sex trafficking, while others claim they were carried off by a satanic cult. One tip claiming that the women were buried in the foundation of a parking garage at a local hospital was so convincing that the authorities tore up the concrete to look for them, and they found nothing. What happened that night in 1992? There was no sign of a struggle. The three women were simply gone. They were declared legally dead in 1997, but the questions that linger still weigh heavy on surviving family members and on detectives who refuse to close the case. Where are the Springfield Three? After all these years, no one knows. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness, patron-only content, and bonus materials, including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you liked this episode, please share a link to the episode on your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. Natro Actual from the U.S. said, I'm a paranormal junkie and found this podcast in my browsing for good material. This guy is great. Awesome narration, content, and ambient music. Never met Darren, but it's cool to see a fellow Marler out there doing cool stuff like this. Keep it up. I'm a canine handler, and I listen to this on my daily runs and hikes with my canine partner. Bubay34 uh, said, I love this podcast. Been a subscriber for a few months now. You have a wonderful voice. Nicole41947 says, Keep up the good work. Love all the stories. Such a great podcast, and I love your voice. Thanks to all of you who have posted reviews. I greatly appreciate it. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Human Bigfoot War of 1855 was written by Brent Swanser. The 1952 UFO crash was written by Nick Redfern. The Vanishing of the Springfield Three was written by Troy Taylor. A Grave Robber's Fate was written by Michael Wilhelm. Weird Winged Monsters of Japan was written by Brent Swanser. The Very Tall Man was written by Anthony Mask, submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on everything I'm doing, you can check out my newsletter. It's The Marler Sheet. It's free to sign up for, and you can do that right now at WeirdDarkness.com or look for the link in the show notes. If you do subscribe, you'll be sent a link to see the very first episode of Weird Darkness, back when I was doing it on YouTube instead of a podcast. If you'd like to come out and see me in person, I have a lot of dates coming up this summer and fall. June 16th, I plan to be on location at the DuPage Comic Con in Wheaton, Illinois. 
June 22nd and 23rd, I'll be at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois, and June 24th, I've got a table at St. Louis Mighty Con in St. Louis, Missouri. You can get the details on these and all the events I plan to be at by clicking on events at WeirdDarkness.com. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I've got links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Hey, weirdos. So the folks at MyPillow said, Darren, can you try out a MyPillow and let us know what you think? Well, I was skeptical. I mean, it's a pillow, right? But what did I have to lose? Well, I'll tell you what I lost. Interrupted sleep. No more folding the pillow in half. No more flat, lifeless pillows. No more using two pillows to get comfortable, which I had been doing for years. This really changed the way I sleep. So I'm letting you know. You need my pillow. Well, not actually my pillow, but your own my pillow. You know what I mean. It stays cool all night long. There's no more waking up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of the pillow. It keeps its shape. No more reshaping your pillow in the middle of the night. It also comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee. So if you do try it and decide you just don't like it, that it's not for you, which I don't think is going to happen, but if it does, you still get a 60-day money-back guarantee. And my pillow comes with a 10-year warranty. Do you have a 10-year warranty on any of your current pillows? Probably not. And also, when it's time to wash it, when you know how your pillows start to get stained and maybe start getting a little smell, and you can change the pillow sheets, but that pillow, you just can't do anything about it? Well, you can with a my pillow. You can throw it into the washer and dryer and it's like new again. You can't do that with any other pillow. Well, right now, as a special just for you, my weirdo family, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Just go to MyPillow.com and enter promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192 if you want to order by phone. That's 800-945-7192. And be prepared to add, to answer some weird questions. I'm not kidding. They asked me what shirt size I wear, whether I sleep on my back or on my side, whether my pillow that I currently use is feather or down, which ones do I prefer? They had a lot of questions for me, and when they sent me my pillow, it was perfect. It was made specifically for me, and that's exactly what they'll do for you. 800-945-7192 or go to MyPillow.com. Be sure to use the promo code WEIRD. You can get two premium pillows for the price of one.